This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. This is the Books Podcast, and the book we're talking about today is Alwyn W. Turner's The Last Post. And yes, we are talking about the uh, about the bugle call here. Alwyn, uh, thank you very much. Welcome to the Books Podcast. Thank you very much. Now, I, there is in, in the human race a very strong tendency to what I always think of as the uh, the teleological fallacy, by which I mean that um, we, we tend to think if something... Uh, stands for something it always has and it always meant to mm-hmm. that it was intended by whom i never know but that that it was you know it was it was like that from the beginning and and the last post is this this iconic um tune played on a bugle that we all associate with well military funerals but yeah other funerals as well it wasn't always though was it it didn't start out nobody intended it for that to be no no it didn't it didn't get used as a funeral for at least half a century from when it was first introduced into the British Army. It was just one of dozens of bugle calls that were played every day at a time when no soldier would be expected to carry a watch. And therefore you had to provide um, signals to tell people what time of day it was, what was happening, where they ought to be in camp. And it was uh, it was just one of, as I say, about two dozen calls played every single day of a soldier's life. It is also, it's a, it's a plangent and, and evocative tune, so, it, it, it is now because it's, 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 it's been associated with that and also because the style of playing it has changed. The music is the same as it always was, but it used to be played much faster. It used to take about 45 seconds to play the, the last post. <laughs> Make it jaunty. Um, and, and yeah, it does. It, it, it does sound quite cheerful um, when you hear it played at that speed and, and you try to strip out all the generations of associations that you have with it. Um, but the way it is now played, the notes are, are, are held for longer, the pauses are held for longer. It takes about a minute and a quarter to play. So an extra 30 seconds on top of the 45 original uh, length makes quite a big difference to, to, to the feel of it. And it does become eerie and evocative and elegiac and all those things. And the context, of course. In the same way Absolutely. that when we, when we used to watch the needing line on television, the Spartacus theme seemed mm. like sea music. And it yeah. really did. I mean, it was perfect. It, yes. it, these things can get associated. Now, if you, uh, the, the book is about a little bit more than simply the, uh, simply the tune. You, you've sort of identified f- uh, five, I think, iconic symbols of of um, of the war and of the the loss, um, and which uh, are the you know the uh, yes the last post bugle call, the the two minute silence, the cenotaph, the unknown warrior, and and the poppy, mm-hmm. and um, in in a way the the book is is about all of those things and also about the 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 way they've come in and entered and, and changed their significance. And and for you, it's it's it uh, quite importantly, it's a democratizing uh, process, isn't it? From from the way soldiers were viewed, sort of before the uh, the Boer War and the Crimean War, and how they came to be viewed uh, in the course of the twentieth century. I, I, yes, there's, there's there's quite a strong uh, strand in the book, I think, which is to do with the the relationship between the civilian and the military world in Britain, particularly because Britain didn't have conscription. 
it was always a volunteer army and Britain was always very suspicious of the army from the civil war onwards in the in the 17th century there's this feeling that uh, that when the the monarchy is restored that the monarch shouldn't have an army at his disposal because it would be undemocratic and therefore there is a, a resentment on the part of the civilian population towards the army also and, they were a bunch and, of ruffians for the most part oh absolutely part. yeah i, I mean, mean there was like a was it a 20 year conscription or something you'd go it to was, the army yeah it was it was effectively you're committing yourself pretty much for life and it tended to be uh, within within families that you would have generation after generation serving in the army, which meant that the number of it was always quite a small army in in Britain, and the number of families who were actually touched by it was was very very small because most most families simply didn't have anybody who ever ever served in uniform, and so there was a, a suspicion of of, uh, of the army, which lasted through um, certainly the, the the Napoleonic Wars to a certain extent, into the Crimean War, but that's where it starts to change, largely because of uh, war correspondents turning up and actually reporting on what life is really like and people being horrified by the conditions the soldiers actually had to live and work and die in. Um, and then, obviously, that comes to its, its, its culmination in the First World War, when, when we, when we have conscription. For the first time, yes, and, and then everybody is touched everything. by it, and, and from there onwards, things are different. Um, even then, I think it still takes quite a while for it goes through uh, phases. Um, it's only recently that we've decided that um, army charities should be called Help for Heroes, and that all soldiers are heroes, for example. Very, very different perception of soldiers to uh, the, the, the one that the Duke of Wellington had when he called his men the scum of the earth. And among the democratisation is the, the uh, wars had been thought of in terms of uh, in terms of great victories and of generals and uh, yeah generals mm. would get a big a big funeral but the idea of honouring an individual grunt soldier was was uh, a new thing by the oh it was very much so I mean the, the uh, yes when you when you when you have a great victory over um, over, over Napoleon then you you erect Nelson's column to celebrate the, the the great admiral who led you there's no recognition of the, the 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 men who served under him that doesn't turn up until the first war memorials to actually list individual men is is the Crimean war but it's really the Boer war where that takes off in a big way and and that brings us to the cenotaph which is which is this this radically different approach to uh, to um military deaths and, and in terms of well, it's it's nature. I didn't realise it was a temporary one, like the Eiffel Tower. They, they oh, absolutely, yeah, no, it was, it was it was built for a single event for one day. So we'll only. stick it in Whitehall, and then we'll take it away because who, who wants it in Whitehall? Yeah. It's a thoroughfare. And 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 it was it was um, it was not for Armistice Day, which is always an interesting uh, development. I think that it, it was it was created for the the Great Victory Parade in July 1919 that followed the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. Because again, these uh, just as the um, the war memorials are a different way of commemorating the dead, the idea of commemorating the end of a war when the guns stop firing this is a very new development as well. Previously, we celebrated the great the, the, the great victory. I mean, people throughout the nineteenth century knew when Trafalgar Day was; they knew when Waterloo Day was. Nobody paid any attention to the day that Napoleon surrendered to the British or the day that Napoleon abdicated as emperor when it was actually the, the end of hostilities, effectively, because that was the end of the, 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 the threat. 
And so in, 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 there's a new development there in, in, in the end of the First World War where people started to, they want to commemorate the day that the guns stopped firing. And as you say, the, the, the mass of uh, population has a much bigger stake in this because everybody, every community has been touched by, by mm -hmm. the deaths. And, and what you find and what you make very clear in the book is, is that uh, the government keeps trying to, um, to, to push things in, in an in a official, uh, a state-oriented direction and keeps having to bow to the, in, the, the wishes of the people yeah. in what they want. And, uh, you know, like the Cenotaph and, and having, the, having the celebration at the Cenotaph. They wanted to move it to Trafalgar Square at one point. Well, uh, yeah, it was, um, they, they, they started in, in 1919, Armistice Day, there were no plans at all uh, until a couple of weeks before the anniversary itself. And then they thought they might have something and, and, and the, the two-minute silence was introduced. And then that was so powerful that the following year it was repeated. But in 1923, for the first time, Armistice Day fell on a Sunday. And then there was a conflict because um, there the had always been on the Sunday closest to Armistice Day, there had been a service in Westminster Abbey and was considered that was the senior service, if, if you see what I mean. Because that, the, that, that, that is the official statement. And of, Armistice Day was relatively secular. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the Cenotaph is very, very deliberately secular. It's non-denominational, it's non-religious, it has no religious inscriptions upon it at all. We should say it was uh, designed by Lutyens, of course. Of course, yeah, which is one of the reasons. The, it, the preeminent. It, 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 uh, it is, he is the, the greatest architect, um, of his certainly time. of his time, possibly ever in, in, in Britain. And it is one of his finest works. I mean, it is a beautiful, simple statement that, ha that requires no adornment um, and has none. And because Lutyens himself was fairly non-denominational in his uh, religious approach, he insisted that there should be no religious inscription upon it. And it, it exists as the People's Monument. Um, they, as I said, it was intended just for that one victory parade. The people demanded that it become permanent and it, it had to be remade because originally it was made out of plaster and wood. Um, and then it's, it's, it's constructed in exactly the same style. I mean, it was... It was, it was no, no change to the design, but made out of marble and becomes a permanent institution. You've got a lovely uh, illustration in the book because there are lots of uh, posters and things of an advertisement for a little, a little model yes. cenotaph. A cenotaph could, in every home that you could send away for for five shillings or yes. ten shillings or something, ten, and have, have your own cenotaph. Yes, ten, oh, ten, ten inches high. Be lovely, and, a tiny uh, little wreath maybe. Yeah, and uh, made made in. Uh, I, th I think it's something like marbeline, which is clearly a plastic that, that <laughs> resembles marble, they, they argue. I sort of want one. I mean, <laughs> yes. it'd be a bit kitsch. It wouldn't be very respectful. No. But I, I want one to go with, you know, like the, the, the plastic last supper you might have <laughs> next to it. It, it. it has that sort of element. And, and I, I guess that's part of the period of, uh, as well, is that there's, on the one side you, you have the government trying to make uh, everything about victory and triumph, the people who wish to mourn, and then commercial elements who are trying to find an angle somewhere in the middle of this. Um, and yes, the uh, Cenotaph for Every Home is, uh, is, is one of those attempts. You are fantastically good company in, in this book, um, telling all sorts of these little stories and, 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 and showing uh, the development of things. I, I was very interested, much more interested than I would have expected to be, in the origins of the British Legion. Tell us, tell us where that came from. Well, there the, the, the were... Towards the end of the war, organisations started to spring up for ex-servicemen, and particularly disabled ex-servicemen. And when the war ended, there were several of these organisations, uh, and they they ranged 
in their attitude really quite widely from some fairly conservative officers associations through to some very radical left-wing um, groups that included large numbers of communists. This is, of course, in the immediate aftermath, not only of the war, but of the Bolshevik revolution in, in Russia. Um, and there is a great fear amongst the establishment at this stage that uh, they don't really quite know what to do about this. There is massive unemployment amongst ex-servicemen. There are millions of them uh, have returned home. Um, many of them with weapons. They're all trained to use weapons, or large numbers of them, but many of them actually do have weapons because the process of demobilization was so chaotic that people came back with rifles. And the idea that you had potentially uh, a, a left-wing force in the country that could be armed and that was campaigning for um, the nationalisation of land, for example, and was in support of the, uh, the Irish uh, campaigners who were waging a civil war against Britain and fighting for independence at the time. Um, this is this is very serious stuff. And the British Legion was largely created to bring all those organisations together into a single body and to strip out all the left-wing elements from by, it. By Douglas Haig, by the, Douglas the, Haig the great it general. And, 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 and in his last speech before he died in the late 20s, he claimed that he had averted revolution by creating the, the British Legion. As far as he was concerned... This was a genuinely possible revolutionary moment. He might have been in, slightly overstating it, but I think he, he thought so. I think he probably he? was, but, it, but his perspective was not unique. Uh, Winston Churchill at the time was arguing pretty much the same, that this is very dangerous. There was a real fear in Britain that the, 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 the example of the, the Russian Revolution might be copied and that ex-servicemen would be at the head of it. And once they started to make connections with the trade union movement, this was considered very, very dangerous indeed. And the British Legion was, to a large extent, intended to neuter that threat. And, and it did it in incredibly effectively. The book is called The Last Post, and it's, it's subtitled Music, Remembrance and the Great War. And of course, the Great War is the phrase. My 10-year-old my daughter asked me the other day, when did they start calling it the First World War, Daddy? And I said, well, round about the second one, darling. Um, how did the Second War change the perceptions of... Uh, of of the uh, the armistice and of the the relative peace following the first world war well i think it 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 had evolved anyway by the, by the beginning of the 1930s people were starting to see armistice day not simply in terms of commemoration of 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 the the great losses that had been suffered but also as a token of future peace that this 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 was in in, in many places it was celebrated as peace day it, the idea was that this was building for the future. And, of course, the First World War um, has this legacy that is so terrible that people feel they should never, we, we should never repeat this. And that had become the dominant strand. And then the Second World War um, puts an end to that. And, and it becomes clear that this is simply about remembrance. This is about commemorating the dead. And, and, and that tune... Um uh, having preceded the 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 war, uh, has then had got this universal application. It's used for uh, non-military. Uh, you, you you mentioned mm -hmm. lots of people whose funeral it's uh, played. Nelly Melba and yeah. uh, um, Wallace, Wallace Hartley of the um, yeah. of, of the bandmaster of the Titanic, who had no military connections even before the First World War. It was being used for civilians like that. And the the, the Irish and, hunger and, striker and Bobby Sands. Absolutely. Well, it, it has now become it has now become this this extraordinary 
international institution. And it has. It's gone, it's gone all around the world. Almost everybody except the Americans. Yeah, who, who have a very, Taps. very good version themselves, yeah. Taps, which is, uh, emerges almost the same time. Um, but I, I think the most extraordinary still seems to me that it was played at the funeral of Gandhi, a man who had devoted his entire life to fighting for non-violence and to ridding India of the British Empire. His ashes are scattered on the sacred waters of the Ganges to the sound of the last post, a British Army military bugle call. And and this is an extraordinary development that it has become so far removed from its, its roots that it is, it is now just an expression of mourning. It is, and it's also a very good book. Alwyn, that's lovely. Uh, the Last Post, Music Remembrance and the Great War, is out now. It's uh, $14.99, which is a good price, from uh, Alwyn Press. And it's a beautiful book as well. It's a, physically a very attractive book. It's very nicely piece. designed, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Alwyn, thank you very much. Thank you. That was The Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. Hey.